This morning, as Daniel read for us, we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, looking at Jesus healing a leper. I just want to remind you, the book of Mark uh, is a gospel, meaning it is a historical narrative of Jesus's life, divinely inspired for the purpose of us knowing the truth about Jesus and who he is and why he came and what he preached. And at the beginning of Mark, we see that what Jesus preached Mark gives us a summary in Mark 1. He says that from that day forward, he preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and trust in Christ. And we've looked at over the last few weeks that Jesus goes on proclaiming and preaching that. Uh, And as he's doing that, Jesus is not only preaching the truth, but he is ridding those in his presence of sickness, of sin, uh, of demons, he is making known the truth that that they might be prepared or that they might understand the truth about who they are before Christ. And this morning we're going to see a couple examples of that, uh, at least one, maybe two, if we make it all the way into uh, two one. I'm going to try to be quicker. We'll see what happens. Pray. But starting first, looking at chapter one, verse forty. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your grace and faithfulness. Uh, to not only care for all things. Thank you, Lord, that we didn't wake up this morning wondering if the sun would rise. But you continue in kindness to give the sun and the stars and the moon, that you leave the earth, that you give us air to breathe and food to eat and life to be had. I thank you, Father, for your kindness and faithfulness in that. I thank you, Lord, as the world reveals, reveals to us and displays to us Uh, that all is not right, that death and sin and Satan have made clear the world does not exist in the way it should. You still in kindness, in forbearance and mercy, care for the world. You care for your people, you preserve us, and you continue to proclaim the truth. I pray you would give grace to my words this morning, that you would help me to proclaim clearly the truth of your word, that we would rest our hope fully in your faithfulness and your kindness and your gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look at the leper who trades places with Christ, uh, I want to just walk through what happens here. As Jesus is out, you remember he was healing in Capernaum and people were surrounding him. His disciples, as we looked at last week, were saying, everyone is looking for you. You've got to do something. They kind of want him to come back into Capernaum or maybe they didn't, but they're feeling the pressure of everybody's looking for Jesus and we're the guys that are supposed to know where he's at. And Jesus says to them, we're we're leaving. We're not staying in Capernaum. We're going to preach. I came to preach the gospel. And so we're going to the surrounding towns to do so. And so as Jesus is going from surrounding town to surrounding town, we see here Jesus is out uh, in between towns and a leper comes to him. You might not be familiar with what a leper is, not a leopard, a leper And if you grew up in the church, you're probably more familiar with this than the rest of the world because we discuss it. Uh, But in our culture, our country, our climate, our time period, it's not very common for us to be familiar with leprosy personally. And praise God for that because it's a horrible disease. Uh, It was once believed to be a disease that actually rotted everything in you. 
In ancient times, that would be the belief that leprosy was rotting your flesh from you, uh, and it was a sign of sin and sickness, and and throughout Scripture it remains that, a sign of sin and sickness. Uh, But the actual effects of leprosy, which we commonly call Hansen's disease now, is that your body is numbing. You start getting all kinds of what would look like eczema growing on your body, and it, it turns to welts and can turn to rotting flesh. And the issue that's going on is your body is neurologically losing the ability to feel pain. And leprosy slowly numbs you into such a state that you are doing things where your body is being harmed, but you don't know. One historical account is of the young boy uh, who went to a lock that was stuck closed, and grown men are trying to open the lock, and they can't. And the young boy walks up to the lock and just turns the key. And he turns it... And they thought, how, how did he do that? And they look at his hand, and then flesh is just ripped off his hand. Pieces of flesh are on the key because he couldn't feel anything. And it, it put such pain or lack of pain in his hand that he pushed beyond the pain that others were feeling from the key and just turned the key and ripped flesh off. The common effects of this disease would be the loss of limbs, maybe the loss of eyesight, It would be all kinds of effects on you. And the social consequences of this disease would be you would be outcast from society. Throughout the Old Testament, the commands are to thoroughly look at to see is this leprosy. And you have Leviticus 14 that goes through what does leprosy look like and when do we know it's leprosy and not leprosy. But the function would be that someone with leprosy, which is a massive bacterial infection, would be moved out of the camp. They would live in the desolate places. They would no longer be in the center with God's people. They would be cared for by others and have to stay away from others. They would be commanded by law at this point to cry out unclean as they walked through near anyone. There are many who would say if the wind is coming towards you, a leper should not be within 100 feet of you. And if it's going away, they shouldn't be any closer than six. These are people who would feel alone, desolate, Uh, not feeling pain, which again, you might think like, oh, that's a great disease, you don't feel pain. And the results of that is their bodies are somewhat rotting away. So this leper who lives outside of everything in the desolate places comes to Christ and he cries out to him. He implores him, he runs to him, he kneels to him. He does all the right things in knowing who Christ is. He runs to Christ, he kneels, he cries out to him, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't ask, can he? He asks to be healed, stating that Christ can. It's a matter of his will. If he desires, he can make him clean. And it says that Jesus, moved with pity, or moved with compassion, stretches out his hand, touched him, and said, I will be clean. The man who probably has not been touched for years because of leprosy is now touched by Christ. Not that Christ had to touch him. We see many times Christ heals without touching anyone. Christ takes physical action when he heals, but we know Christ doesn't even have to be present. We'll see in other accounts of Christ's healing. uh, He heals from where he is, people who are miles away. But in this case, Christ, in compassion and pity, not only heals him, but reaches out and touches him and says, I will be clean. And what happens is immediately the leprosy left him. Immediately, he is clean. Immediately, he is cleansed. Now, even in our modern time, Hansen's disease is not a disease that is cured. It's a disease that's halted. Uh, unless anything's changed from all the books that I have in my library and have read, uh, maybe, who knows, medicine's advancing and confusing to me all the time. Uh, but to my knowledge, which is not medical, there's no cure. What modern science can do and modern medicine can do is they can halt it where it's at. The earliest it's catched is where things will stay. But notice it doesn't say, and immediately his leprosy stopped affecting him and he was left at the current state. It says immediately he was clean and the leprosy left him. 
He's free from this. Whatever effects of leprosy were on the man are now gone. And you might say, well, well, how do you know that? Well, I know that because that's what it says, right? Uh, but how could Jesus do that? And we, we will see in this very same passage that Jesus is not the type of healer that finds a way to get someone to do something quickly and move on and pretend as though something happened. Jesus healed people in such a way that it was immediately apparent and clear to all. In such a way that the man who had leprosy the man who would be outcast, the man whose own flesh is rotting, is renewed, is made new. Whatever effects he had are gone. This is an incredible miracle. These are the kinds of miracles that Christ accomplished as he lived on earth. This is not how we use the word miracle often, right? We say this was a miracle and it could have been a random circumstance. Now, I know as Christians, we use the word miracle and others would say that was just a random circumstance. And, and I would argue everything's a random circumstance by the views of many. And everything is a divine, gracious act of God, by my view. And so we might use the word miracle when really we mean God just acted in kindness in such a way that we are thankful. But this is not the normal kindness this is not the normal graciousness. This is a different kind of pity because this man is made completely new from leprosy. This isn't debatable. No one's standing there going, hold on, where's the camera trick, Jesus? And unfortunately, in this case, it's because no one's standing there. No one else wants to be near this man. <clears throat> and so what does Jesus do? He has pity on him. He heals him. And he instructs him. Look at verse 44, 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. What does Jesus instruct the leper to do? Not to make a public testimony of this, to obey the law of Israel, to go and to give sacrifice or to give worship to God for what has been done, to go to the temple who is the priest and the priest would be there. And this is the priest that is the one who knows Leviticus 14 is the one who would test and say, is this leprosy or not? And he's to go to this man and he's to say, I'm the leper, and I've been healed, and I'm here to make my sacrifices according to the law of God. You might think, what a strange request of Christ. Why would he not tell him to go publicize it? Why, why would he tell him to tell no one and to go and to do this? Christ came to stir the whole world, but, but he did not come to do that by building a fan base. He did not come to do that to gather a crowd. He did not come to do that to get a PR agent, to make little statements and, and try to get as many people to see that as they could. He came with a specific purpose. And we see in the book of Mark and the other Gospels, there remains a time in Christ's ministry where he says, let no one know. Why? Because Christ, for three years, is training his disciples. He is preparing and he is preaching the gospel. He is making known the truth of God. And he is moving forward in his plan that he planned, that the Father planned, and he submissively is fulfilling to show compassion not just on the leper, but on all. And so Jesus does not command him, go and make it known. He commands him, follow the law, go to the temple and make it known, make the appropriate sacrifice, praise God and thanks God for what is going on. And what does the leper do? In the same way in which the leper ran to Christ, fell on his knees and cried out for Christ to heal him, he obeys Christ, right? He runs to the temple, goes to the priest, 
No, no, he does the exact opposite. Though he approached him in the right way, he does not obey Christ in this case. And says, but in contrast to what Christ has said, he went out and began to talk about it freely. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer enter a town, but was in the desolate places and people were coming him to him from every quarter. What happens? What's the result of Christ's compassion on him as Christ calls him and tells him to go to the temple and the leper disobeys? The result is Christ trades places with the leper. If a leper was going to go to town, a leper would have to do so secretly against the law or openly cry out who he was that they could stay away from him. And now this leper who lived in the desolate places, who lived away from society, has now traded places with Christ. In compassion, Christ has healed him. And now what the leper once could not do, now he does openly. And he walks through the cities and he walks into the towns and he walks right up to people and buys things from them. And he touches them and shakes their hand and lives with them. And he's rejoicing over his healing. And Christ, who healed him, now has to enter cities secretly has to stay out in the desolate places. And when he goes to the city, as we will see, he is surrounded and crowded and called out to. It was not, in one sense, Christ's intention for the leper to respond and for that to be the result. Right? Christ made his command clear. And yet we know, in God's providence... Nothing happens outside his will. What a confusing thing. What a difficult thing to understand. How is it that Christ, knowingly the man was going to disobey him, commands him to obey? And yet the man does the opposite. He doesn't obey. How difficult to understand just here. But in your own life, do you not deal with the same struggle? Have you not been clearly commanded by Christ and yet chose to do the opposite? Have you not seen the blessing of Christ in your own life and knows what he has said and yet choose to turn and do the opposite? Have you not cried out to Christ, please help me? Please save me from this. Please fix this for us. And then when he shows grace, he shows mercy, he shows kindness, and things begin to change. You go back to what? Your old ways. You, like the leper, are not confused. You, like the leper, Faith Bible Menifee, have heard the clear commands of God. And yet, as you come and cry to him, you find often in your life, you turn and do the very things you know he has commanded you not to do. You hear his clear commands and you think, but wouldn't it be better if... Well, let me speculate for a moment. This is not in the text, and I don't know this leper, and neither do you. I don't know what happened in his life following. I don't know where he was and what the circumstances of this were. The leper is not the important party in this narrative. It's not about the leper. It's about Christ. And the grace and the compassion of Christ to trade places with the leper in this instant. But could you imagine if you were this leper and three years later Christ is crucified? By who? The leaders of the temple by the high priest, by Rome and the Jewish powers in Israel calling them to crucify him. Imagine you are this leper and you have enjoyed three years of life that you've never known because of leprosy. And you think, man, it was so great of Christ to do that. And you've been living in all of that great glory, just feeling like I can just function as normal. And then one day you hear Jesus of Nazareth, who healed you, has been crucified as a criminal by the leaders of Israel, 
because he proclaimed to be the Messiah, and that to them is blasphemy. Imagine being the leper who was commanded to go to the priest and to tell them, Jesus of Nazareth cleansed me of leprosy. And a priest would see this and think, what? Who is this Jesus? People are not just being healed of leprosy in Israel. It is likely Jesus healed others, but we only have two accounts of Jesus healing lepers in the Gospels. This one, and he heals ten lepers at another time. Imagine being that leper and living in Israel and hearing that Jesus Christ has been crucified by the priests. The priests whom you were commanded to go to and to tell Jesus is healing people of leprosy. What kind of weight would remain on you knowing, what did I do? What if I had listened? What if I had gone and told the priest and he knew that this is the Jesus who cured me of leprosy? This Jesus was giving the signs of the Messiah. Imagine the weight And imagine his difficulty to accept the relief when three days later, that Jesus rose from the dead. Might he think, how could Christ ever forgive me? It was I who put him on the cross. If I would have told the priest, what would have happened? If I was just more faithful, if I would have done the right things, Maybe it wouldn't have had to happen this way. This leper trying to take upon himself the burden of Christ and figure out how do all these circumstances work together? I know I disobeyed him, and yet he still had mercy on me in traded places. But that trade was nothing. The trade of the leper to live in the cities and Christ to live in the desolate places as people came to him was not the exchange that Jesus makes. It was not the greatest exchange. Because the greatest problem was the leper, of the leper, was not that he was cast out from the people. It's his sin. His greater need is to be forgiven of his sin. So what do we do when, like the leper, we live and think, what about all these things in my life that I've done? What about all the times that Christ has given me clear commands and I've turned? What do we do? We trust in the word of Christ. Christ came not just to heal the leper, but to preach the gospel to the leper that he might know the reality of grace and forgiveness, and that he might mature. It is major speculation, please hear me. All of my questions about the leper are all speculative. It's not in the text. We don't know what happened to the leper, but we know what happened to Christ. And we know the truth that if that leper was to walk down that road, or to work through those thoughts, to hear the truth. He might be confused. He might not understand why things happened the way he did. But he would know the truth that he can be forgiven in Christ. That his hope can rest fully in Christ. And he would move then to count everything as Christ's. What do you do with your past life? What, what do you do when you have felt like the leper and then been healed and brought into the community of Christ and then you find yourself turning back to your leprous ways? Paul gives clear command in Philippians and hopefully this leper, like you, became part of the church and found a place to hear the truth of God and was declared to him that these are not the things that would keep him from Christ that these things could be paid for and taken care of, that in the grace of Christ, it was not just Christ's healing and giving him a second chance, it was Christ dying and giving him new life. 
Paul, very different from the leper, had the same need. He needed complete redemption. While the leper was outcast from everyone, Paul was right in the thick of it. The Apostle Paul was the highest of Pharisees, up and coming, a man who would be esteemed and looked at by the religious, a man who would be brought into all of the things of Israel. And yet Paul, in Philippians 3.8, says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ. In knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found to be with him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul says it is not the righteousness of his life that he counts, but the righteousness of Christ that is accepted by faith. He counts everything as rubbish or maybe even more aggressive words. And that he cares for Christ in all things. He puts all things as Christ. He says, I count nothing. I look forward to Christ and the resurrection. And then he goes on, as is in your handout, verse 12 of chapter 3. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to make the resurrection my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal, the prize, the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. And let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What does he say? If I'm looking back at anything in my life, anything in my life to say this is what gives me righteousness, or this is what condemns me, and I'm not considering Christ in that equation, I'm wasting my time. He says he looks back at no righteousness, according to the law, to say, I will be with Christ. He looks back at no failure to say that will keep me from Christ. What does he do? He looks forward to Christ. He looks onward to Christ. And he says, if Christ has made me his own, then I live to make him my own. And I press on to make him my own. Looking forward to the upward call in Christ. Trusting that if you're thinking any other way, what will he do as you're pressing forward? He'll review that to you, reveal that to you, make it known. And so graciously he does. He says, let the mature think in this way. Let the mature think in such a way that they have the end goal in mind. They have a growing dependence that compels them towards forward progress that pushes them to rest everything in Christ because they know they fully rest in him. And no matter what success or what failure come, no matter what good deeds or what filthy deeds have happened in your past, your eyes are forward on Christ, looking forward to the upward call. And what does this do? It compels the mature. It compels them to live for Christ, to make him their own, because he has made them his own. And so they move forward. Christian, too often we are just willing to move backward. Too often we Like the leper, think of our own failures. 
We think of our own scars, our own wounds. And it's not a mature way to think. It's a pitiful way to think. Not wanting to use money as an illustration, but Jesus often did, so I will. It's like if tomorrow you were given a trillion dollars and you chose to live as though you were broken poor and you had nothing. Not that you chose to keep your normal life that you are now and give it all to missions. That would be a great choice. <laughs> live as you are financially. But if you were to walk around always saying, I'm poor, I can't afford that. I can't do that. I'm not sure where we're going to eat tonight. Rather than communicating like the mature that says, I could afford that, I'm choosing not to buy that. I don't want that. I have a trillion dollars. I, I could buy pretty much anything I want. But I'm choosing to be a steward of my trillion dollars and move forward on the upward goal of Christ, right? He's saying, be mature. Be those who are Christ. Be those who recognize everything that you've been given. And not that you can fall back into sin and not that you can puff yourself up in some self-righteousness, but that you can lean on the resources of Christ and say, according to Christ, I have everything I need to move forward. In Christ's compassion for the leper, he shows grace. And in the confusion of the leper, he trades places with him. He takes all the burdens that the leper once had and leaves the leper to live in the gift of Christ. That gift's not an eternal gift. It's not a forever gift. But it was a temporary gift to the leper. I pray that the leper recognized the gift that had been given to him and matured, not just to get what he wanted from Christ and go back to his ways, but to live to obey Christ. I pray that this first interaction with Christ was just a reminder to him, never again, never again do I want to feel the pain of turning from and living in disobedience from Christ. The miracles of Christ were to make that clear. It was not just to show the leper that he could be healed, but to show the leper that Christ had the power to forgive sin. Briefly, we're going to look at verses 2, or chapter 2, 1 through 12, that Jesus shows this is his power to forgive sin. Look with me at 2, verse 1. He says, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many gathered together so that there was no room for him, not even at the door or no room, sorry, even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could no longer get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Let's look briefly first at the problem of the paralytic. What's his real problem? 
Now, many times I think we look at this story, if you grew up in the church, we look at this story and we talk about friendship, right? You want the kind of homies that are like, look, we're going to get you in there. I don't care if we've got to raise the roof, rip the roof off that place, we're going to get you in there. Those are good friends. But that's not the point of the story, right? The point here is not about friendship. Those are good friends, and if you read this and in your Bible reading, you think, I want to be that kind of friend. That's good and faithful and godly. But that's not the point. As Jesus is surrounded and these friends in love for his friend bring the paralytic to him, and you can look up in books, because you probably think, how is it that they ripped the roof off this place? That doesn't make sense. That's not going to work. You don't understand ancient housing because we don't live like that anymore. Praise God, we have a lot more leaks in our roofs than just the occasional one every 10 or 15 years. But they're removing a portion of this roof because of the way it was built and lowering him down through a hole in which they could then go back and repair. Because like in the ancient world, people knew how to do that. Now we're like, COVID's here. So many things in our house need to be fixed. How do we do that? But they knew and they did so to get this man there. And they drop him down and Christ sees him. And what is Christ's response? What is, number one, what has Christ come to do to make the gospel known? And so he tells this man, whom you don't know, but Christ does, son, your sins are forgiven. And you might hear that and think, don't you even care? This man is paralyzed. And you're going to say your sin is forgiven? Do you even understand what he's going through? Jesus, do you even get his problem? You're saying his sin is forgiven? He can't walk. He doesn't have use of his limbs. He's crippled. And you're saying his sins are forgiven. And we don't have any indication of how the paralytic felt about that. There's no statement here about the paralytic's response to that statement. It doesn't say that the paralytic then rolled his eyes and said, I can't use my legs, Jesus. Maybe you didn't notice why they lowered me in from the roof in a bed. I'm not worried about my sin. It could be, and it's very speculative, and we don't know. Maybe this man is paralyzed as a result of sin. Maybe he's being lowered in the room because his sin is what really is holding him back. Maybe he's very fearful in Israel because he knows his sin before God and he knows that he will be condemned forever. It's not the temporary use of his limbs he's concerned about. It's his eternal soul. And maybe as he's lowered down before the Messiah, living his days in contemplation and thought, not able to get out and to work, he's just mulling over his sin. The words, son, your sins are forgiven from Christ. Give him more hope than the use of his legs ever could. Maybe. Or maybe in God's providence, he was teaching him also, and maybe the paralytic did feel that way. I really just need my legs, Jesus. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But from the word of God, we know the bigger problem is his sin. We know the eternal need is he needs forgiveness before God. It is not the temporary use of his legs, but the permanent state of his soul, which Christ addresses. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then we see the scribes. Up to this point, we've seen the disciples, we've seen the crowds, and you remember the religious leaders of the time or the other uh, often actors in this historical account, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Scribes would be particularly those who study the law and know the law. There would be those who look to the law and give an account and teach the law to others. And so they, knowing the law, are not there, listening to Jesus intently to hear the word in which he is teaching. But as critical men, they're being critical. And they hear what he says, and in their hearts, they're saying, should he have said that? They rightly think, no one has the right to forgive sins except God. Who does he think he is? Who does he think he is telling this man? I forgive you of your sins. And Jesus, being God, knows their heart. And what does he do? 
He opens his mouth to reveal their hearts. As the scribes are questioning in their hearts, Christ speaks out loud. Verse 7, as they say, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. All week I've been wrestling, which one is easier? I'm like, what does Jesus mean? Which is easier? I mean, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Right? If somebody's standing in front of me, I might be able to tell them, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. I'm not going to make any attempt to tell them, rise, take up your bed, and walk out of this room. I'm not an apostle. God has never given me uh, that kind of power, nor do I expect him to. I don't think he has called me to do that. But Christ asks the scribes, which one do you think is easier? And as I'm wrestling through it all week, and what does he mean? Which one does he think is easier? That's not Christ's point. He says, whichever one you think, I can do both. You pick which one you think is easier. But I can accomplish both of them. I am the Messiah. I am Christ. They can say whatever they want. But he can do what he wants. The point of Christ's message here is not one of these are easier and harder. The point is he has the authority to do as he wills. And he has the authority to forgive sin. And so maybe a smarter man than I could read this and look at commentaries and figure out which one does Jesus think is harder. But I know for me they're both impossible. I can't do either. Praise God he can't. And I think it's very likely that's Jesus' point to the scribes. He says, you sit here and you look at the law and you're, you're meddling over it and thinking all these things and you hear me tell this man his sin is forgiven. And your first thought is, can Jesus do that? Not, I need Jesus to do that. Now maybe this is their first time. We don't know, again, who these scribes are. They're not the point of the story. Maybe they're just hearing him for the first time. Maybe they've heard the things, and as faithful men, they are being meticulous, as the Bereans are accredited to be those who go to the Word and they try to see, are these things true? It's likely, from the book of Mark and the other Gospels, these scribes weren't looking to follow Jesus, but there are some, some Pharisees like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who go and follow Christ. These are men who were of the religious leaders and sometimes secretly and occasionally openly followed and pursued Christ because they saw the law, they looked at it meticulously, and they said, this is the Messiah. But Jesus wants to make the point to these men. And so what does Jesus do? In perceiving their heart, he shows he has the power to do both. Now, I think... The scribes would assume it's easier to tell someone they're forgiven. Because who knows? It's easier to say with your mouth, your sins are forgiven. Be warm, be filled, and move on with your life. Because who's going to tell you it's not? Jesus is the only one in that room who knows whether or not his words were true. And because Jesus spoke them, we know, and he knew they were true. The sins of that man were forgiven in Christ. He could fully rest in Christ. Jesus did not say, son, your sins are forgiven, and yet he was left in his sin. His sin is laid on Christ. But Christ then says three things to him. And unlike the leper, this man quickly obeys all of them. He says, rise up, take up your mat, and go. And what does the paralytic do? And he rose up immediately. He picked up his bed and he went out before them all. And they were amazed, glorifying God, because they never saw anything like this. 
doesn't say he hobbled up and got a little bit of help out of the room because he's just learning to use his legs again. It doesn't say that Jesus gave him a pair of crutches and banged him on the head and he fell over and then people dragged him away and we just assumed, oh, he's probably healed because he fell over from a head injury. Jesus doesn't heal like modern hypocrites and heretics heal. Jesus heals, and this man rises up, uses his legs, and walks out. And what do the people do? They're amazed. They're shocked. How could he have this power? Jesus proclaims to these scribes, He can forgive sin. He is the one who can say your sins are forgiven because he is God, the Son of God. It's not about the friends. It's not about the paralytic. And it's not about the scribes. They're not recorded so that you might know about the friends or the paralytic or the scribes. They are recorded that you might know about this Jesus The Jesus who doesn't just have the power to say, rise up and walk. The Jesus who has the power to say, your sins are forgiven. That in Christ, your life is new. That you will arise, like Paul said in Philippians, that you press forward for the upward call of Christ. Ephesians reminds us, as it did months ago when we first, years ago now actually, that we first started Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, chapter 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is the mystery of Christ's will? It is to unite all things in Christ. The mystery of Christ's will is that one day there will be no sin. There will be no sickness. There will be no paralytics. There will be no friends. There will be friends, but they won't need to help you get lowered down to Christ to be healed. There will be no lepers. There will be no scribes. There will be no Pharisees. There will be no mockers and no critics. There will be Christ reigning on the throne. And his people gathered around him, singing his praises and cultivating the earth to his glory, free from sin and free from sickness and free from Satan. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin by his blood. According to what? How much you can live like the leper or the paralytic? Your forgiveness is not based on your actions. Your grace and mercy in which you are given is according to the riches of His grace. The riches of the man who says, your sins are forgiven, and it means what he says. The riches of the man who says, rise up, take your bed, and walk out, and he means what he says. Your salvation is not dependent upon your yesterday or on your tomorrow. It is dependent upon Christ. Your grace, the grace given to you in Christ, the redemption of his blood, and the mystery revealed. It's not about making it through last week. And it's not about making it through next week. And it's not about what's going to happen to our country. And it's not about if illness is going to kill people we love. And it's not about civil war or chaos. It's not about politics. It's not about your children's education. It's not about any of those things. All of those things are just a part of the picture and the mercy and the grace of God as he moves all things toward what? United in Christ. When the fullness of time comes, when all things are united in him, So what do you do? You hear what he says. 
You trust Him. You live to obey, not because that will get you saved, but because He has made you His own. And you long to be His. You don't reason in your mind like the leper, it would be better to do this rather than to obey Christ. You trust Him, even when you're confused, even when you say, I don't know, wouldn't it be better for me to tell everyone than to just go tell the priest? You go and you tell the priest, because that's what He said. You be faithful. You confess your sin. You repent of what you know is sin. You strive for the upward call, trying to make it clear to all that Christ owns you because He owns you. And you want it to be known. And you rest. That if He doesn't say, rise up, take your bed and go home. If He doesn't say, I'll end all the marital strife. If He doesn't say, I'll take away the illness of your family. If he doesn't say, I'll take away these burdens. If he doesn't say, I'll give you all the wealth and all the health and all the prosperity. He remains saying, your sins have been forgiven. Live for the upward call. Not for today. Not for tomorrow. But for Jesus. It's not about the scribes. It's not about the leper. It's not about the paralytic and his friends. And it's not about you. Because when all things are united around Christ, all things live for the good and for the glory of God. Strive to unite all things around Christ. Let the history of the leper and the paralytic not just be a story that you think about, how do I apply? Let it be a reminder that your temporary problems are nothing compared to the grace of Christ to give you eternity. And have courage to press on in the temporary problems, knowing that he will unite all things in him. Let's pray that God would be so gracious and so merciful to do so, as he has told us he will. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you, Father, for your care and your love and your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you would show compassion to a leper, God. Who knows how many lepers Christ showed compassion to that we don't have recorded. I pray, Father, you would help us to hear and to learn to be matured and, and to grow in our love for you. I pray, Father, as we wrestle with things that seem beyond us, we would remember your grace and kindness to the leper and rest on you. I pray as we struggle in all providence to try to figure out and, and try to know what would be the best thing to do, you would help us to listen carefully to your words and to trust you. I thank you, Father, that you are faithful in a way we do not know. I thank you remain in that faithfulness no matter what we know or do. I pray you would give us endurance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.